Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and today I've brought along with me, as I often as I can do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, say hello to everybody. Hello, friends, family, and listeners. So we've had a, a stretch of faculty meetings uh, with some guest co-hosts, uh, mostly because of your new job schedule and some scheduling issues, but you are absolutely still the favorite co-host of choice, uh, and I'm happy to have you back on the mics as often as we can. Well, I do always enjoy recording with you, Michael. If only my job was this instead <laughs> of the day job. Ah, brother, I know, man. Oh, I know. But uh, One of these a... days, we'll get that rich benefactor and corporate sponsorship, and this can be our full-time gig. I would not say no if that were to happen, that's for sure. Nope. I'd, I'd, I'd happily uh, quit and do this. <laughs> if, if all, if I had at minimum the same level of financial income, hopefully more. <laughs> right. I, I would even take a little less, to be honest with you. But that is a dream for another time. Today, we want to talk about a faculty meeting episode 109, which is what we are here today to record. So the reason that we gather for these faculty meetings is so that Caleb and I can talk about the state of RPGs in our lives and that we hope through these conversations we can share some of the experience he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, as long as your table's having fun, then you're doing it right. So with that out of the way, Caleb, do we have any announcements this morning? Mm, I don't know. I mean, we're pretty busy. There's not a whole lot going on. Not a lot. No, nope. uh, there's but, one big thing. <laughs> but we are contractually obligated to at least briefly mention a catacomb. Uh, according to the contract that we wrote for ourselves and ticked, and most of the time ignore. You know, uh, we, but <laughs> we were tough, though. We negotiated hard and, you know, it was fair. It was a fair contract. It was a fair contract. I'm pretty angry at myself, though. <laughs> I, I, I gave myself some uh, allowances that I, I feel very guilty about at this point. But I also am happy to take advantage of myself. So it's OK. But hey, yeah, Akatacon 5th Edition is on Kickstarter. As of the time of this recording, we are at 71% funded. Thank you so much for being part of this project, but we do have a long ways to go. We still need that other 30% or 28 and a half or whatever. It's early. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good at math, so sure. Yeah, so we definitely need to get to 100% to make this thing happen. And of course, overselling is great because then we can make even more things happen. But with that in mind, just like last year, we will continue to sell tickets via Eventbrite after the fact. But the more money we can raise through Kickstarter, the more money we can use upfront for deposits, for purchases, just to make this as good as it can possibly be. Last year was amazing. It was more amazing than the year before. We want to continue that trend. We want to keep making this better and better and better. So if you haven't bought a ticket yet, Please remember that Kickstarter does not take your money until the end of the campaign, which is about a month away. So even if you don't have the scratch right now, if you think you'll have it in a month, jump on in and pledge. Uh, yeah, and we actually we did have a couple people actually that did not realize that's the way Kickstarter worked. And they were waiting to pledge after they got a paycheck. And then I, you know, 
through conversation, I realized that that was the sticking point. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. And they jumped on. But we understand we're asking for money very early. So if we need to, we can give refunds. So like if you think you might come, but you're not sure and come October, you're like, can't come. We will absolutely give a refund up until November 1st. We can give refunds. We'll, we'll have to take a little bit out because Kickstarter takes a little bit out from us. So, you know, you might basically be given like $3 away, but hopefully that would be worth it to you. So if you think you're coming, pledge now. And if you can't make it, you know, again, minus three bucks or so, we will give you your money back up until November because uh, we know we're asking for it early, but that's just the way, that's the way the timing worked out for us to be able to do this and get our deposits and not directly conflict with other conventions around us. But that is enough of a catacomb talk. Uh, again, I'm sure you guys who aren't coming and don't care are very much tired of it. So uh, we will move on. But I will quickly mention our Twitch channel. We are still trying to gain some traction there. Every Monday, 8 o'clock Eastern, we have Lawful and Orderly, which is the show that Scott uh, runs, which is a D&D procedural show in the world of Lan Arcanum. Yes, that is LA for short. And uh, they do basically weekly uh, murder mysteries. So unlike a, a serialized show, you can jump on anytime. You can listen to any episode. You don't necessarily have to have listened to any of the others, which I think is a great concept for a Twitch show. And then every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, we do Detention Live, where myself, uh, Scott, and Matt, and then usually a rotating third co-host or so, uh, jumps on and we, we talk about some D&D stuff, but really it's more of just a hanging out with us and people seem to be enjoying it. We just need to get more people to watch us live so we can interact with you. So with all that garbage out of the way, Caleb, what is our gamers lexicon for today? Today, our gamers lexicon is noble. So what does that mean? According to the dictionary, or at least this version of the dictionary we pulled up on the internet. <laughs> the internet version of the dictionary. Belonging to a hereditary class with high social or political status or aristocratic. Okay. So for a lot of D&D games and a lot of role-playing games in general that, uh, that I have experience with, is that you're usually playing in a sort of a, a pseudo-European medieval world with like magics and dragons tacked on top of it. So a lot of times you'll have NPCs, particularly powerful ones that have titles of nobility. You know, you're interacting with a Duke or a Duchess or a Baron or a Baroness. And just in case people weren't exactly sure, we thought we'd talk a little bit about what nobility means. And then we also, thanks to Dr. Internet have a list of other titles that sort of qualify as nobility and that may, maybe you can use in your games to give a little bit more variety. And certainly you can go outside of the pseudo-European version. And, you know, there's other cultures and other languages that you can use. But we have a list of a few that we'll go over. Uh, so do you want to hit that list a little bit, Caleb? Oh, man, there's so many words and variations here. Uh, some of my favorites, Caesar, Kaiser, Emperor, King and Queen, of course. Here's some weird ones. Mansa. High King, Annex, Pharaoh, uh, Rex, Wang, which all could, also could be a really fun insult. <laughs> Khan. Ooh, Khan's a good one. Khan! Khan! Sultan. There's a good one. Uh, Prince, Princess, Duke, Despot, Sheik, Mir. I'm just reading off of Wikipedia here, guys. So yeah, yeah <laughs> I, 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 I'm reading along. Uh, there's a uh, Marquis, 
Mm. Uh, Landgrave, Count, Viscount. I think that's Fuhrer. Probably. Probably would avoid that one, though, to be honest. Yeah, we should probably skip that one. Yeah. Uh, Grand Duke, Grand Prince, Archduke. Uh, There's one that's Dauphin, not Dolphin, but close enough to that. Or just Dolph Lundgren. That could just be a a prince (laughs) title right there. Just give him all the titles. Every generation of Dolph Lundgren is born. (laughs) Only he has the power to fight the vampire. Wait, I think I'm mixing a couple metaphors there. Who cares? That's a great game. We're going to play that game. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So so for me, I mean, I'm very big about using dukes, uh, duchesses, barons, baronesses. Uh, those are the ones that I'm most likely to use. I mean, you know, king and queen, prince and princess for like the royalty, but for the sort of the lesser, you know, the the person that rules over rules the land is probably going to be a duke or a duchess. So Wikipedia and the internet is your friend. You come up with some different versions of that, particularly if you want to flavor, you know, if you start in a pseudo-European world and then you want them to go somewhere else that's supposed to be exotic, then it makes sense for those nobles to have a different name or a different sounding title that reflects the fact that they're now, now not in the same place in the same type of culture. It's a very easy thing to do. does not take long at all, obviously. And you can always make up your own, but I like to draw on, on the history a little bit because some of your players will know that what that means, and that can give them a very quick connection to, oh, I know this... In history means that they're, you know, the third son of a noble, for example, and that gives them a connection. They can kind of makes the world seem a little bit more real in a way. Yeah. Making up fun new words is a great way to add flavor and dimension to your homebrew world. So absolutely make up whatever you want. Make up crazy titles that have weird meanings and are spelled with all kinds of extra consonants and vowels and apostrophes, do whatever you want. But remember that we're playing pretend and we need something to latch onto as players. So using a couple of words that are easy to grasp and understand the concept of helps create that real world environment. And we can look at some other games too. I mean, an easy one is L5R. L5R takes the... Japanese nobility and injects the entire game world with that very easily. It's everything in that game. So if you wanted an example of names and titles that are not pseudo-European medieval, just look at that book and you have every title you ever want right there. So it's very easy to jump between titles and styles when it comes to different parts of the world. And one of my favorite words, and I, I remember reading this as a kid, having no idea what it actually meant or how to pronounce it. And I probably still don't, but a seneschal, seneschal, which is basically like the second, there's, I think I looked up, it's the steward of like a medieval great house, the major domo. They're the ones that basically does like the day-to-day running of the household. Uh, And it's just a fun word. So uh, seneschal, look it up, kids. It's on the internet. And everything is right on the internet. Yes. And until proven otherwise, which is also on the internet. So you're still technically correct. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, being hypocritical is awesome because then you have more than one chance to be right. And if you take the hypocritical oath, you can be a doctor. I think that's how that works. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. So with that out of the way, let's move into today's main topic, our general assembly. And this came from a Facebook message group thingy I was part of the other day. And, And I know we've touched on this before, the idea of when and if the DM should ever say no to the players. But specifically today, I wanted to touch on 
the idea of when a player is trying to do something that is impossible, how should you handle that as the DM? You know, again, some some very common wisdom that is thrown around a lot these days is never say no. So should you say no to a player if they say they want to do something that is just impossible? So things like, I want to shoot an arrow and hit the moon. Okay, that is within within the rounds of physics, unless we're adding in magic, impossible. But there is magic in the game. What if they want to seduce a dragon? Is that something that could potentially happen in your game? Or is that just, no, that's, but no matter what you roll, that's not going to happen. So as a DM, Caleb, how do you handle, or what, how have you handled in the past, situations where when a player wants to do something, you don't want to stifle their creativity, you don't want to just say no, but they're going to do something that they cannot actually accomplish. How do you handle that? That's a tough question to answer. Uh, I think a great example of one way to handle it, in an old game, very, very old game, somehow we started this bit, this joke, that a ranger wanted to try to jump to another plane of existence. Not like jump through a portal, but physically jump with the power of his legs to another plane of existence. So it became a joke. It was just an ongoing in-joke with the group. And at one point, I think just to screw with him, the GM gave him a ring of jumping. <laughs> and it it just became an ongoing joke. At, at, at any point when we weren't in main action or there wasn't a scene happening and the GM said, what are you guys doing? The guy that was playing the ranger would say, oh, I'm off in the corner trying to jump to the elemental plane of fire. And it was funny. It was a nice break moment. We always laughed heartily and then got back to the game. So sometimes with silly, impossible things like that, you just make it a point of humor and forget about it. That may or not be the right thing to do. But in this case, it started as a joke. So we continued it as a joke. But if we're talking about this seriously, we have to consider the world we're playing in, the rules of the game we're playing in, and honestly, what the word impossible means, how we define it as both a player and a GM. If we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, we're talking about a game world where physics is broken because of magic. Magic just defies all logic. So, the term impossible needs to have a much more fluid meaning. When we have people that can summon fire out of nowhere or break the laws of thermodynamics and create matter out of nothing, let alone people with superhuman physical strength and combat prowess, when you have someone who can shoot an arrow through the eye of a needle or whatever... (laughs) Impossible things happen every day. So when we say, I want to do something that is impossible, or my player wants to do something that is impossible, we're adding in another level of, well, you can already do superhuman things. Why why are you trying to do this thing that is even bigger and better? So maybe the first two questions are, what does impossible mean, and why does the player want to do it? Yeah, I think sort of the avenue that that I'm taking here and and there's two main 
potential processes that, that I'm seeing, there's probably more. There's a situation where as a player, as a, as a character, I'm saying I want to do something that I know is actually impossible, but I want to try because I want to see either how well I can almost do or how spectacularly I can fail. So for example, like I want to shoot an arrow to the moon or I want to jump a, a cavern that's like the Grand Cavern without, you know, certain magical enhancements. I know that that is not going to happen, but I might still want to do it for whatever reason. I want to try. So as a DM, should you just say, no, you cannot shoot the moon. So I'm not even going to let you try. Or should you say, you cannot shoot the moon, but let's roll the dice and just see what happens. You know, you're not going to shoot the moon, but something interesting could happen. And for me, I think that is kind of the, the, the issue that I would have is if I know it's impossible, but the dice roll could be fun to see how good or how bad I do, then I'm totally okay with rolling that die and, and playing along. If as a player, as a character, I'm doing something that I don't know is impossible, but the DM does know is impossible, then I don't think I want to roll without first being just told, okay, Michael, what your character's trying to do is not possible in this game. So no matter what you roll, you will not be successful, but we can roll the die to see what happens. Because what, what I don't want to have happen, I guess is the way that I would explain this, is if, is if I as a player don't know it's impossible, and the DM's like, sure, you can try that. Because that, that's a very common advice that was given in this forum is always tell the players, sure, you can try. You can try that. But if I roll the die, and I by God get a natural 20, and then you say, no, you still fail, well, screw you. Like, why, why did you give me false hope? And let me roll the die. If the, no matter what I rolled, I could not actually succeed. That would actually make me angry and frustrated as a player because I thought I had a chance. And then if I miraculously rolled as best as possible, I still failed. That's not fun for me. That's not something I'm like, oh, okay. That, you know, it's like, no, like, why did we waste the time? Why not just tell me, no, you can't do that and then move on or, or reframe it and say, you cannot do this on your own. But if you get three other people to help you, or if you make four checks in a row and all of them are five higher than you need, yeah, like, like reframe it in a way that lets me know how difficult it is. Because I think there's a, a, there's a side issue here of communication that if I don't actually know how difficult the thing is I'm trying to do, then I may be rolling something I don't understand. Because as a person, I can look at a, a, a hole and I, I know what my vertical is and I know what my long jump is and it's not very good because I'm an old fat man these days. So I'm going to know as Michael, I cannot jump that. But when we're talking about a role-playing game, I have, again, I have a player, excuse me, I have a character who does have stats that are probably better than mine. And I, the only thing I know about the world is what the DM has told me. So I may not, I may not realize, I may not realize that I can't actually do it and I think I can. And I think that that's one of the biggest issues is making sure that I actually understand how difficult things are. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And there's a lot to unpack out of this whole discussion. So hopefully we will spark some interest and people will give us some feedback on uh, the show notes, on comments, on social media and stuff. So we definitely want to encourage discussion here. A lot of times you hear a GM say in response to a player's question, you can try anything you want, which is very true. But that is also 
in my opinion, a verbal cue that you're going to fail or what you are trying is wrong. And <laughs> I do not like that. When we're talking about role-playing games, and I've said this many, many times, we're walking that fine line between trying to be immersed in role-playing and knowing that we're playing a game. We know that we're playing a game with rules, and those rules define how and what we do in the game world. But we also know that since we're playing pretend, we can make up anything we want. So when a GM says in response to, hey, can I make this check to try to do that thing? And the response is, you can try anything you want. That either means, well, as a GM, I didn't plan for this, so try it and see what happens. Or, no, I don't want you to do that, but I don't want to say the word no, so I'm just going to try to discourage you. That verbal cue, I think, is kind of one of those telling, oh, I probably shouldn't try this. And here, like, um, like, uh, like a time when a GM says, oh, hey, can you make a spot check? Okay, nothing happens. You know something happened. <laughs> Unless they're just trying to screw with you, but yeah. Right, but... Remember the old order of the stick joke? Uh, I think I failed my spot check. And the goblin behind you says, yup, <laughs> pretty much, right? Yeah. So there are, there are verbal cues that are based within the confines of the mechanics that we're structuring ourselves to that point you in a certain direction. So a lot of times, if you, if a player wants to try something that's very difficult or impossible, telling them to just give it a try, you, you have to know what results you want first as a GM. And I think we talked about this previously before when we've talked about consequences. You have to make up your mind what consequences you want as a GM, and you have to stick to them. Now, you can always change your mind, but if if you say, okay, player, you want to try to jump the Grand Canyon, roll the dice, you have to kind of commit to either falling to their death or succeeding and stick with it. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, the player is just going to try stuff and float away or get saved magically or let someone make a reflex save or whatever. Sometimes you have to stick with consequences. Um, but what to what you were saying before, Michael, you were saying as a player, you don't want to feel cheated when you pick up the dice. From the GM side of things, what you have to remember is you need to roll dice when the results matter. And that's a that's a thing that has been a phrase for a while, but I think is coming back around as being very important. Dice represent chance, a chance of success or a chance of failure. So if that line between success and failure matter, that's when it's important to call for a role or encourage a role. So if a player is saying, I want to do this thing, and you as a GM decide it is impossible, you need to know why the player wants to do that. Are they just being silly? Are they trying to advance the story? Do they have some bigger plan? And then decide if success or fail matters. If it doesn't matter, maybe it just happens. Or maybe something spectacularly happens to stop them from trying that. But if it does matter and it's cool, then maybe a dice roll helps. And the, and the reason I want to talk about this is because I can make an argument like four different ways depending on if I'm a player, if I'm the DM, or just even how I feel at the time. Because, you know, as a player, I like I don't want to play in a world 
where we're trying to make things somewhat serious. Now, again, as most people who listens to our shows know, I'm usually the worst at making our games stupid and silly. But let's say I'm trying to be serious. I'm trying to trying to live in a world in this character that that physics generally makes sense unless magic's involved. Let's try to have some examples here. Let's go to your Made Men world. That was a world where magic was there, but it was rare and it was super powerful. It was pretty much a grim, gritty, regular world, but fantasy driven. Correct. So in that world, if one of the characters has said, I want to jump over this pit, because there was a point in the game where there's a pit that was like 100 meters across. And I say, sure, roll the dice. Let's see what happens. And they rolled a 20. And I'm like, okay, you did it. You managed to jump 300 feet across. That would have just broken the uh the the you know the reality of that game because that makes no sense unless i try to make up some reason why like you said some you know unseen benefactor helped you something like that but then you know then you're you're forced to try to create something that may not fit the tone of the game either so i so i don't want to do that as a dm i don't want to allow those types of things to happen if it's not not going to fit the the tone and the theme of the game to that point so I I wouldn't have let him roll. I just would have said, no matter what you roll, you're going to fall. So if if you roll, it's only to see how well you do before you fall. And I and if I say it that way, and they're like, still okay, I want to do it. Okay, great. We're we're all on the same page now. Let's roll the dice. If you roll a one, you're going to trip over your own, d- and you're going to just <laughs> roll right into the edge of the pit. If you roll a twenty, you're going to get this huge, just great, you know, amazing Olympic style leap. And then you're going to fall like 30 feet down into the pit from there. But at no point are you going to actually succeed. So communication is super, super, super important. Yes. We've always stressed here at the Academy that when you're playing a role-playing game, you are cooperatively telling a story. So when a player wants to do something weird or crazy, take a beat and say, why are you doing this? What's your bigger point? And they may explain, well, if I try to do this, that could lead to this, or my character would want to do it because of that reason. Okay, great. Talk about the consequences. When you're talking about jumping over a giant cavern, say, you know there's no way you can do this, right? What's your goal for trying? Are you trying to make some spectacular show? Do you have some secret magic item you're going to whip out the last minute? Are you trying to pull the old, I'm doing an impossible feat, but I'm going to use magic to secretly bolster myself so I can impress the foolish natives trope, right? Or are you trying to kill yourself? That That's right. valid too. Right. And I think that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, that I, I only see the world through the DM's eyes. So, you know, again, and God knows I've done this. Maybe I said feet when I meant yards, and the player's like, yeah, 30 feet, that's a big jump. But with, you know, with the rules of D&D, I might be able to do that. And I'm like, whoa, 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 no, did I say feet? No, I meant yards. And then they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I definitely do not want to do that now. <laughs> you know, because I don't want to be that, that dickish DM who's like, oh, well, you said it, you jumped into the pit, now you're dead, sorry. That, that's not fair to them if I'm the one who screwed up or if they just heard me wrong because they were, you know, checking Twitter or whatever. So I, I think it's very, I think it's completely okay to clarify the situation. And like you said, ask Let's say you rolled a natural 20. You're going to leap to your death. Is that what you're trying to do? Or do you have another goal in mind? And then they're like, wait, no. If I roll a 20, I should clear that pit easily based on the rules. Uh, no. So, you know, I think that's where you you want to make sure everyone understands before that die is rolled. 
if you're going to live and die, quote unquote, by those results. And something else that we've been touching on here is the restrictions of the rules. In a D20-based system, it is generally assumed that rolling a 1 means the worst possible thing happens and you fail. And rolling a 20 means the best possible thing happens and you succeed. However, that's not always true. In various editions of Dungeons & Dragons, a 20 did not mean an automatic success against all odds. Sometimes a 20 is just a 20, and it's the biggest number the, the dice randomizer mechanic can generate. In some situations, it does mean automatic success. In others, it just means you got a big number. If we look back to 3.5, skill checks did not technically run on a crit success and a crit fail schedule or setup. It was literally you can pass or fail depending on the numbers you get. So you could roll a one, but have so many modifiers that you still pass the DC of the check you were doing. And rolling a 20 simply meant you added a 20 to all of your other modifiers, which meant you got a big ass number and you probably beat the DC. So when we're talking about if I roll a 20, I should automatically do it. That's not always true. Right. It's like free parking and Monopoly. A lot of people play that way. Not actually a rule. Exactly. House rules sometimes are assumed to be regular rules, and they're not. It's just so common, everyone assumes that's the regular rule. So another decision you have to make when you're talking about an impossible thing in your game, where do you sit on your understanding of how the rules work? Does rolling a 20 really mean the impossible does happen because you got that one number on the die that was just a random number generator? Sure. And you know what? Let's go back to the I want to jump across a 300-foot pit. If you decide that if this guy rolls a 20, I'm going to let him do it, that's a good story hook. I mean, you've kind of put something into the game that should not work, but you're letting it work, which means the player's going to ask, why did that work? And according to the Michael rule, you just answer, well, I don't That's know. Weird, huh? That's weird, huh? <laughs> and, right. you, and you've got a story hook. Now, well, wait a minute. Why did I jump? Was I on a ley line? Did I have some deity helping me? Did someone cast a spell? Did the laws of physics bend and this pit magically became a foot across when it was supposed to be 300? So you could go crazy. It, one... One mindset is if you let impossible things happen, you're making for a better story. If someone says, I want to shoot an arrow at the moon, and you say, great, you shot an arrow at the moon. Now what? Well, now there's an arrow on the moon, and maybe you shot a moon man, and now the moon men want to come and fight you. Or maybe the moon men were waiting for someone to realize they could shoot an arrow to the moon because the moon is actually way closer than it looks because it's crashing into the world, right? right. You can just let the story go. And I'm, and I'm okay with that, but that drastically changes the tone of the story. Which is why communication is so important. Right. Because if I'm trying to play a game that is quote-unquote serious, then those types of things will actually make the game worse, I, in my opinion, than if we're playing like a game that where crazy things are expected to happen. So, for example, let's reframe this question or this concept. So we're going to wait from like physically jumping a pit. That's impossible. Okay? That's the, we're going to agree that that's impossible. But let's talk about seducing the dragon. So... It's hard to say what's impossible because the dragon's not real. You know, it, the, the, the difficulty of how hard it would be to influence a dragon's mind 
is partially based off on their stats, you know, what their charisma, what their intelligence, what their wisdom is. But it's also just in the mind of the DM. And if a player wants to try to seduce the dragon or get away from the they don't want to trick the dragon. They want to lie. They want to bluff the dragon. Do you just say, okay, the DC's a thousand, so no matter what you roll, you can't do it? Or do you just say it's impossible? You don't even let them try. I mean, so th- this is a very different situation. It's still, quote, we're going to use the quote unquote impossible, but it's not physically impossible. It's the DM saying, that makes no sense to me, so I'm going to say that you can't do it. So how do you handle those types of situations? So when it comes to something like this, while the answer is more difficult to get to, and like everything else on this show, we very frequently do not have answers. The dragon has stats. And if a thing has stats, there's rules for how stats work. If it bleeds, we can kill it. And if it has charisma, you can roll against it. You, you have diplomacy. That's a skill. Another creature that is intelligent can make will saves and charisma saves. The rules are there to try tricking a dragon. So within the confines of the rule, it's not really an impossible task. Now, it may not make sense to you as a GM because you have this perception of dragons as the biggest, most powerful, most dynamic, most impressive creatures, and they exist on this separate plane. They're so much better than mortals that they, even though their stats are there and they're comparable, they're at such a different level of existence, there's no interaction. Looking back to 3.5 or Pathfinder, dragon stats were damned impressive. They were huge numbers. In 5th edition, where everything is much more flat and streamlined, those numbers are bigger, but they're, the difference is not as much. There's, they seem to be on a much more approachable playing field. And in fact, since we're talking about dragons, dragons in 3.5 and Pathfinder really did have their own culture, their own nobility, their own aristocracy. They had a, a secret worldwide planar game that we were that they were playing with mortals just to screw with them because they're bored. Dragons have their own culture. When you're talking about, well, I want to try to trick this dragon or seduce this dragon, you as the GM might be saying, well, I'm assuming that dragons are coming from this type of culture and that wouldn't really work out, but maybe you as the player don't know that. Maybe the player just says, hey, here's a big dumb animal. It happens to be a dragon. I'm going to try to trick it. I'm going to do the whole, hey, hey, got a tennis ball, got a tennis ball, go. Right. Maybe maybe dragons are just animals and they would fall for that. Again, communication matters. So I think I think this is a, a more interesting example in a lot of ways, because you could have a dragon that has a charisma that's so high that it is impossible even by the rules, because if we're going to follow the rules of our natural 20, it's not automatic success. It's just a 20. It's entirely possible that if the player rolls a 20 and adds all the modifiers, that number would still be lower than if the dragon rolled a one and have also has all their modifiers. So just within the concepts of, of reality, that is possible. Very unlikely, cause especially in fifth edition, it probably wouldn't be that way, but let's just say that it is. But as a DM, I could have a lot of fun and a lot of storytelling opportunities with the attempt. So if I'm a bar and I want to seduce a dragon, I'm probably going to let them roll, even though they're not actually going to seduce the dragon. But if they roll really well, that might tickle that dragon's fancy a little bit and be like, you're really good at this. Didn't work on me, but I'm impressed with how well you did. And that might change the way they feel. And they might, you know, they're, they're not seduced, but they might be like, I'm going to let you live because you made, you made me laugh. I haven't laughed in a thousand years. You know, so, so you still succeed in a way, or if you fail terribly, you might piss the dragon off. The dragon's like, you know what? I was going to let you leave, but no, now, now you, I'm going to eat you. So 
I can see where letting them roll, even if it's impossible to succeed, is interesting to the story in that example. And I think the core of the point you just made is that it's not always best to let your dice simply be yes or no. Even when you have a success or fail, it doesn't necessarily translate to, okay, well, you failed your attempt. Let's move on with the story. I think every time you roll the dice, it impacts the story and there's a new development. There's a new twist. So yeah, you failed your attempt to seduce the dragon, but now the dragon is more interested in you for whatever reason. That could be horrible or that could be awesome or you succeeded in your attempt, but now it just changes the story. Every time you roll the dice, the story potentially changes. Not even that. Every time you roll a dice, the story should change. Remember the whole bit in Community where they rolled the six-sided die and made multiple dimensions or multiple realities? Love that episode. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Every time you roll the dice, the outcome should change. Whether or not the number on the die, whether or not we define that as success or fail, it still impacts the game world. So in this situation... I'm trying to do something really, really difficult. Success or fail of the number I get should not just be that failed, that succeeded, move on. It should be that was a success or fail, and here is how the next step moves forward. I think when we're talking about doing something impossible, a lot of times people get into a black and white yes or no situation, and there should always be shades of gray. There should always be ranges of success. And since we're talking about D&D, D&D is a very binary pass or fail mechanic. And I think that is potentially part of what is making this conversation more difficult. Let's talk about Dungeon World for a second, or the Powered by Apocalypse system. You're rolling for a range. And that range is going to lean towards failure or lean towards terrific success. Or something like Fate, where you're simply rolling on a ladder of how well you succeed or how badly you fail. It's much easier to handle that super, super difficult task. Yeah, I think the language of those games makes it a little bit easier. I know we've talked before, I definitely play D&D more with ranges of success. But again, those are house rules. That's not actually by the rules of the game, but that's the way I run them. And I, I, and I definitely, I think this kind of circles it back around to my original conceit that if I as a player roll a die, no matter what I roll, nothing happens that would aggravate me. The examples we're giving, that's not true because we're, we're framing that situation as six. If you roll really well, something will happen differently than if you roll poorly. And in the example that I was, I started with, which was a nebulous example, that wasn't the case in the case I'm giving where no matter what I roll, I fail. It doesn't matter if I roll one, if I roll 20, the DM's going to say you fail that's a very different situation. So I think what we've kind of got to is that we shouldn't roll in those situations or we should clarify and then maybe give them the opportunity to change their mind or just say, you can't succeed. So tell me what it looks like in your head. You don't have to roll the die. You're just going to tell me what failure looks like to you because no matter what you do, you can't succeed. I think that makes a lot more sense. And, and I, well, and again, this doesn't quite connect, but it came into my mind. I want to mention it that if as the DM, you let them roll the die and you haven't told them that 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 no matter what they roll they will fail i kind of feel like you should let them succeed so just don't let them roll without clarifying and 
an example I have as a DM, I was running a game a couple months ago with uh, Travis and with Ryan in my home group. We had a couple people cancel last minute. We decided to go ahead and play, so I ran them through a little one-shot adventure I've been playing around with for convention games. And there was a moment where Travis wanted to try to bluff an NPC. And basically, well, it doesn't matter. It was a goblin, and it was a goblin guarding some prisoners. And I said, Travis says, I want to pretend like I'm a goblin. And obviously, he's not. He was a human in the game. And in my head, I'm like, this is so dumb. I was like, but but as a DM, I said, okay, roll it. MFR rolled a natural 20. So in that moment, I'm like, okay, he buys it. All right, goblins. He says, you look weird for a goblin. And Travis is like, yeah, I'm new. And he's like, okay. And he handed him the keys. And and it made no sense in the game, but it was the funniest moment in that game. It's probably the thing I remember the most. We all cracked up and it probably made that game so much better than it would have been. But it worked in that type of game. It would not have worked in, say, an L5R political intrigue game. Yeah, absolutely. The tone of the game matters a lot. The situation as to why you are rolling or why you are dealing with this impossible situation matters a lot. Let's be honest. In D&D, you can always just, according to the rules, make a DC that is so difficult, the player has no chance of hitting it. You've not really cheated them. You've just worked against them or decided that what they are trying is just far exceeding them in a situation that they could successfully resolve it. You haven't taken anything away from them. You've used the rules to kind of answer the question for you. If someone says, I want to shoot an arrow at the moon, you say, great, that's a DC 100. There's no way they can hit a DC 100. But you still can say, well, I let them roll the dice. I let them, I let the dice decide. But you really made the decision that the DC was so high. I kind of feel like that's the the lame way out. I kind of feel like that is avoiding the conversation and potentially or more definitely eliminating the option of a really cool story moment to happen. So that moment where Travis rolled a 20 and bluffed his way past a goblin when he didn't even try to disguise himself, that's a great hilarious moment because you're playing a great hilarious game and those kind of things matter. If seducing a dragon makes the story better, maybe it should happen. Or at the very least, you should explore how badly the PC fails, because that makes the story more exciting, too. If you're trying to bluff your way past a dragon and you spectacularly fail, and now that dragon is hunting you down, you've just made the rest of your game so much more exciting Because now on top of the story you're planning or organizing as a GM, you can throw in, oh, hey, by the way, now this dragon's right outside your door. What are you going to do? You've made a cool enemy that's going to be recurring, that's going to be very exciting. Or let's say you pass and you charm the dragon or the dragon is taken up with you or whatever. Now you've got a buddy dragon who you can call on for favors. That's awesome. I keep thinking of Donkey and Shrek. Like, well, Daniel, <laughs> Donkey and Shrek. Yeah, I, I think for me, this this keeps coming back around to making sure that the player actually understands the stakes. Because if I'm going to let them roll as the DM, then I kind of feel like I'm 
I'm agreeing to abide by the die, by, by the results. And that's what, what, what happened with Travis. Had I just said, the goblin's dumb, but there's no way the goblin's going to think you're a goblin. Just, that's, that's just not within the bounds of reality of the world that we're playing in because you're a human, he's a goblin, you don't speak goblin, so it's not going to work. But when I said, roll it, let's see what happens. He rolled a 20. I felt obligated to be like, okay, it works. And maybe a smarter DM quicker on their feet could have thought of a way to let them succeed, but not actually like the bluff didn't succeed, but the, but what they tried to accomplish would still succeed. You know, you know, like maybe the guards like, no, you like turn to hit the alarm, slipped on a banana peel, hit their head, knock themselves unconscious. You know, there's a way to give them success without actually saying what you tried to do worked. But that also feels a little bit weird to me. Uh, so I think it just comes down to, to communication. What you're trying to do cannot work. So what are you trying to accomplish? And then if that makes sense, let's roll the die and see what happens. There's certainly a level of compromise when we're talking about difficult actions like this. I, I think what you just said matters a little bit. I think that's a good solution in certain examples, not all of them, but in some of them. The PC is trying to do something impossible. They get a really great die roll. You decide to honor that great random number that was generated by letting them accomplish their intent, just not in the way they intended. And that's kind of like a manipulation of failing forward, succeeding sideways kind of thing. <laughs> TM. TM. TM RPG Academy 2017. <laughs> um, something you touched on a while ago and we kind of brushed past it break down the action into a series of checks. If you want to do something really, really crazy, I need a plan from you on how you're going to accomplish this. And if you can succeed at all of these smaller checks, then I'll just let you do the impossible thing without checking. If you do other things to help you accomplish the impossible thing, maybe this becomes a skill challenge instead. Or this becomes a party challenge Hey, we need to charm this dragon. None of us can get that number. That's impossible. What can we do to make this happen? It's a side quest now. Now it's kind of a MacGuffin. How do we get the MacGuffin, which is charming the dragon? Okay, well, I, as the fighter, am going to go do all these really heroic things to try to earn some prowess and get the dragon's attention. All right, I, as the bard, am going to go spin all these stories about how awesome we are as a party so that it'll feed back to the dragon and she'll be more interested in us. I, as the cleric, am going to go say all these prayers and ask for divine intervention and blah, 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 right? Then it becomes we're all working together to accomplish this impossible task. The bottom line of all of this is you're making the story better. And that is really the crux of the matter. Communication and keeping the story going and making the story better. So... In an attempt to sum this up, <laughs> it comes down to communication first, making sure that everyone is on the same page as to what exactly the situation is and what the possible outcomes are. Giving them the understanding that no matter what you roll, you will fail. And if that is the case, then they probably don't need to roll unless you just want to see how spectacularly good or spectacularly bad they fail. But try to frame it in a way that something changes no matter what the die roll is, even if it's not actually success in the way they intended. 
And I would still add the caveat that is, you know, as someone who, who says they are an improv heavy DM, who tries to live by the yes and methodology within the, within the scene, I am totally okay with telling a player no, if it's actually a no. I think those are, I think those are two things that get conflated a lot that don't actually oppose one another. It is absolutely okay to say no to a player in the right situation. And if a player says, I want to shoot an arrow and hit the moon, it's okay to say that is not going to work. I'll let you roll the die and maybe something really cool will happen if you get a 20, but the arrow is not going to end up on the moon no matter what you do. And as long as they understand that, then it's okay because you're avoiding the situation I mentioned that if I say I'm going to shoot an arrow to the moon and the DM's like, great, roll it. And I roll an extra 20 and they're like, you missed. You hit the sun. I'll be like, well, damn it. Why did I, why did I even roll? That makes no sense. So that, that is what we're avoiding by reframing it, clearly communicating, and making sure that we have an understanding of what can and cannot happen regardless of what happens on the die. Yes, and is just as important as no but. I agree. I'm shaking my head, yes. People listening cannot see that, but I was going yes with my head, not with my voice. You got got to remember, this is this is an audio podcast. Well, I'm new at this. Oh, okay. <laughs> actually, we've been doing a lot of stuff on Twitch, so I'm actually kind of getting used to being able to do physical, uh, physical cues. Got to break that habit. All right. So as always, we will throw this back to our audience. I think Caleb kind of did earlier already, but let us know your situations. What have you done as a player and as a DM when you've come across these in quote unquote impossible situations? Uh, What is something that happened that you thought was a terrible way to be handled? And what some ways that things that you're like, oh, that was brilliant. I was so happy that that's the way that that worked out. Let us know. Please comment in the on the website underneath the comments, shoot us on Twitter, hit us on Facebook. Let us know uh, your examples and what you've learned from your, your, your time at the table. Uh, So we're going to move into our last segment today, which is new student introductions. And this is where we take a class and a background and we kind of mush them together and see if we can come up with some interesting character concepts. But before we do that, we are going to let you know how you can get a hold of us if you do have questions or comments. And Caleb, how can they get a hold of us? Well, the easiest way is on Twitter at the RPG Academy or on any other social media, if you type the RPG Academy after the slash, you'll probably find us. More than likely. And if not, you'll probably find some other fellas that might be nice to talk to. True. And yeah, they might be, might be better at this than we are. Probably. And then if they want to send us some emails, how would they do that? I don't know, because I never check my email. It's michael at the rpgacademy.com. And, and actually, I, I created a new email recently because we've been having a lot of trouble because, you know the rpgacademy.com sometimes it gets put into spam folders so there's now a new email that's the rpgacademy at gmail.com so you can use that one as well it, it comes directly to my phone which is a benefit so i get it right away uh you can also email caleb at the rpg academy if you just want to do that because doing in, in, um, futile things makes you happy in a way because he will not check that email yeah, yeah. Please send emails to me so that once a year, I can go back and delete them all. <laughs> nice. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's wrap up today's show with our new student introductions. And today, we came up with the concept of mixing the noble background with the cleric class. I thought that was a pretty interesting combination. I had a couple thoughts that came to my mind, but Caleb, do you want to go first or do you want me to me to go first? I would like you to go first. Okay. So the first thing that I thought of 
is you have a situation where you have a ruling class. So you have these the nobles. And they probably have some particular ailments that they may want to keep hidden. So if you have the duke that has syphilis, doesn't want everyone to know that he's been doing what dukes used to do. Maybe they have a private, you know, doctor of, of sorts that maybe he's been given this hereditary title, like given the the title of, of nobility in exchange for their discretion at treating their maladies. Now, this gives a good example of why this started. You still would have to have a particular character. So maybe you're part of that family. So there would probably be like one family of clerics or maybe one particular church. Uh, that church could also be uh, corrupt in a way. Maybe that's how they got that title is they were like blackmailing some of the nobles. Maybe the king or the queen got some sort of, you know, leper. It doesn't have to be like sinful, but like, you know, uh, they got leprosy or they just got some other disease and they don't want their, their subjects to know because it might cause them to think they're, they're, they're weak or maybe their enemy nations might know that they're weak. So you have to have some discretion in dealing with these royal royalty issues or these, you know, illnesses. So you have one particular family or one particular temple that is given access to everyone in return for their discretion. That's very interesting. I think that has a lot of potential story hooks. You could do a lot with that, especially if all of your players are members of that family or members of the court. It could be just as interesting to have the one cleric leave that family for whatever reason and go on an adventure with another group that they're trying to find a specific item for the cure that they need, or they're abandoning their family for whatever reason. There's a lot of hooks for that. When we're talking about the whole background class combo, it's sometimes very easy just to relegate the background to the background. I was a noble, now I am a cleric, and I carry some of that weight with me, some of that knowledge and experience. That's always the cheap and easy way out of a challenging combination like that. You could be, I was a noble, but then I felt a calling by a divine influence, and I left my nobility, journeyed to a monastery or temple or church, and learned how to commune with this various god or whatever. That's a great story. There's nothing wrong with that. I was a noble, but my entire family, my entire kingdom was destroyed by X, and I sought out a god who could help me seek vengeance. There's nothing wrong with that story either. You could have, hmm, we could look at something like a land ruled by the church where the priests are nobles, kind of flipping the order. The, the I don't know, I don't know what this would be called, not a, um, is it an oligarchy when it's the religion that's in front of it? Let's say yes, because okay. at the RPG Academy, we pride ourselves in facts. Uh, so let's say you have an oligarchy, if that is the right word. So you choose to be a priest, or you are called to be a priest, or you are born into the priesthood, so you are nobility. That could be very interesting as well. Uh, then you'd have almost a dynamic of, why am I doing this adventure with these peons? They're all my servants, kind of thing. Yeah. So that could be really interesting. If we look at what the 5th edition player's handbook tells us about the noble background 
It's a theocracy. A theocracy. Okay. What's an oligarchy? Uh, that's just basically if a small group controls the entire government, they're called an oligarchy. Oh, okay. So uh, theocracy is what we were just talking about. Again, we pride ourselves on facts. So the people who are halfway through writing their tweet, haha, we got you. Or Michael at the RPG Academy <laughs> dot com. Correct. So some of the characteristics uh, or benefits we see here in the player's handbook, the normal one is that you get a position of privilege, meaning that you carry your nobility with you and you can leverage that with other nobles or against the commoners, the common folk make every effort to accommodate you and avoid your displeasure. So you can basically waltz in and say, I want this, this, and that, and you get it. Another classic example of nobility in the fantasy game is the fact that you're hiding your nobility. So you were a noble, and for whatever reason you were a cleric, maybe it was part of your family, but now you're on the run. So you have to hide your background. Like in Sister Act 1 and 2. Exactly. So if you're confused about what we're talking about, just picture Sister Act and you know exactly what we're talking about. But instead of being a lounge singer, you're a noble. Mm -hmm. So maybe you entered the priesthood to hide your nobility. Of course, that begs the question, why do you get divine magic <laughs> as yes. a cleric? Maybe you pretended so well, you just got spells. <laughs> or you were chosen. Like, again, if we're dealing with divine magic, gods work in mysterious ways. Uh, and maybe they thought that that's a way for a divine presence to show their power is to take a non-believer, give them power. Clearly, I exist because I can work through an impure vessel. Or... If you want to define magic differently in your world, maybe you just studied a lot and learned how to cast this type of magic. It, if it does not have to be a gift or inspiration or natural aptitude and you just learn how to do it, maybe you are a noble and because you are a noble, you have more free time to study and you just learn how this type of magic works and there's less of a line between uh, divine and arcane being these two separate power sources. And if you want to play with the setting and, you know, maybe not have it strictly forgotten realms or dark sun or, or Eberron, whatever, maybe all nobles can cast divine magic. That's just part of, you know, almost whether you're chosen by divine magic or chosen by nobility, they go hand in hand. The one thing I want to bring up is, is as, as a DM, if someone said, Hey, I want to be this noble that is hiding in the church. I would probably give them the benefits of a different background and make that more of a story because you really aren't getting the benefits of being a noble if you're never allowed to use it unless it becomes like a very big plot point in the future. But that's probably I think in some ways it would be it would be cheating the player in a way. Although if we really think about it, you could get very creative with that because in fifth edition, the benefits of your background, you get some stuff and you get some skill proficiencies. The skill proficiencies of a noble are history and persuasion. Those can be very beneficial even if you are hiding the fact that you are a noble. And if we go by the core feature that you can abuse your position of privilege, you could think of some very creative ways to use that even if you are hiding where you come from. For example, maybe you... Maybe you translate that into a bonus when you are negotiating with a certain 
person or a merchant or something like that. Because even though you don't want to reveal that you're the high noble of the land and I should just be able to tell you what to do and you do it, maybe you have secret knowledge about this merchant. And you can just twist that into a conniving, more manipulative uh, social interaction. So you can use your background without revealing who you are. And maybe that could become a more exciting part of the game because you can say, all right, for every time you want to abuse some of your noble knowledge, we run a risk of someone recognizing you. It's almost and, like wild search table. For, yeah. Yeah. So like every time you do this, we roll if you get it a one, then something spectacular happens. And I really like that because that that is basically reflavoring the background. You keep the same benefits, but you, you approach them differently. And I think that's a brilliant way to handle that. So, yeah, it's. Maybe not necessarily an odd combination, but it can be challenging, and it definitely presents some interesting story elements. Very cool. So again, as always, we will throw it out to the audience. If you can think of different or more interesting ways that you could crunch the noble and the cleric class backgrounds together, let us know. If you've played that combination, let us know how that went and what you did with it. Uh, and just general thoughts and feelings about uh, the examples we came up with. And check out Sister Act 1. It's actually a pretty good movie. Second one, not as much. I have no comment on Sister Act. I, I have nothing to share. And as, uh, maybe a more contemporary example, think of the maesters in Game of Thrones, particularly Ma Maester Pycelle, who's actually in King's Landing. He very clearly has some inside knowledge about what's going on with the nobles and kind of has used that position to keep him in power and influence. It's not exactly what we're talking about, but I think it's closer than some other things that we touched on as a way to sort of leverage your ability to do things into the power of a noble might have. At the risk of ruining this working relationship and losing all of our listeners, I am not a Game of Thrones fan. I'm pretty sure I'm right, so you can't say I'm wrong. So until someone else says, then my example works. I believe you 100%. Perfect. All right, so that has been Faculty Meeting 109, which I'm pretty sure I'm going to title as Sideways Success uh, with a TM after that. So uh, any final words, Caleb, before we wrap things up and get out of here? If you would like to tell me how wrong I am, buy a ticket to a Catacon 2017. Yes, and if you you back at the $100 level, you get to punch Caleb in the face. I did not approve this. I do not consent to that. However, not opposed to it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you, Caleb, for your time today. Thank you to everyone who's listening now or in the future. Um, we will be back at some point in the future with another episode. Until then, check out our Twitch channel on Mondays and Wednesday nights and also our YouTube page. We have a few things up there as well. So this has been Michael. And this is Caleb. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. 
you can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.